Well, as I said, my parents visited this past week, and you know, while they're here, uh, inevitably you discuss bygone days, right? When things were when I was a kid and living in this place and so forth, and it got me thinking how much things have changed in my 45 years of existence. 45 years, thinking back. I thought back how I grew up with no computer in my house until I went to college for my freshman year. And there we learned about an exciting new product called Microsoft Windows. That was the thing, Microsoft Windows. And I remember that first computer that we did have, and it weighed probably 500 pounds. Things have changed. I grew up with uh, telephones that were landlines, right? You had to stay where you were as you talked on the phone. You might see how far you could stretch that cord, right? Probably pulled them out of the system there sometimes. Or you, if wanted privacy, sometimes you would have to try to close the door and not smash the cord. And I remember how excited I was when they invented cordless landlines. That was like the big thing. Wow, things have changed, haven't they? I grew up listening to the radio to catch my favorite songs because that was the only time you would ever hear them unless you went out and bought cassette tapes. And sometimes they were problematic because they would melt if you left them in the sun or they would break and you would try to tape them together. So you would only really listen to the radio. Things have changed, haven't they? I grew up watching TV with three main networks. That was what you had to watch. And there were no remote controls. That's what the kids were for, right? (laughs) Get up and change the station, kid. Things have changed dramatically. And they've changed dramatically in our world. Remember growing up where the U.S. was engaged in a Cold War with the Soviet Union. That was very intense. I remember watching war games as a little kid or that movie, TV movie, The Day After and thinking about what might happen if we went to war with the Soviet Union. Well, the Soviet Union fell apart. Now we're engaged in the war on terror. Things have changed. Over about when I was a kid, they said that China's economy really wasn't much, but it grew 50 times larger between 1978 and 2008. 50 times larger. And now their gross domestic product has surpassed that of the United States. Who would have thought that could have happened 45 years ago? Things have changed. The population of the world has almost doubled in that time. The percentage of people who live in cities has dramatically increased. On and on and on we could go, right? The seasons change. Three days ago it was 20 degrees, now it's 50 degrees, right? Seasons change. Relationships change. Our appearances change. My mom had on her phone my baby picture. And another picture of me when I was probably about three or four. Straight blonde hair. 
you would have never imagined me looking the way I do today. Things change. And they continue to change. And they will always change. The Greek, ancient Greek philosopher Heraclitus said that you can't step into the same river twice. Think about that. He's right. Change is all around us and it's within us. He also said the only thing that is constant is change. Change is a fixture in this created world. Would you agree? But when it comes to the creator, it's much different. God does not change. In theology... It is said that God is immutable, meaning that he does not change. Not only does God not change, he cannot change. God is immutable. He is unchangeable. So today as we continue this series on the attributes of God, we come to this often what I would say is an overlooked attribute of God that I think we should really understand and embrace. Why is that? Well, the immutability of God is kind of like a thread that holds the other attributes of God together. If God were changeable, how would we know that He would remain perfectly loving, perfectly powerful, perfectly just, and so forth, right? The immutability of God holds all of this together. How would we have any assurance that God would remain God? Who wants to worship and serve and put their trust in a God who is changeable? Now, I'm not saying that the immutability of God is the most important attribute, but I'm just saying it uniquely links them together. You see why that's important? It's also important that we think accurately about God and this particular attribute. God is immutable, but that doesn't mean that he's a frozen statue, right? Does not mean that he does not interact with the world or that he lacks emotions. And so we need to think, how do we put all of that together? Kind of a complex subject. So Wayne Grudem gives this helpful definition of God's unchangeableness. He says, God is unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes, and promises, Yet God does not get, yet God does act and feel emotions and he acts and feels differently in response to different situations. So this is a lot we're going to process here this morning. And finally, I want you to see that this attribute has remarkable practical importance in your life. It's not just a theology lesson, but if this sinks down deep into who you are, it really affects Uh, Every aspect of your life, grasping this often overlooked attribute can dramatically change how you live your Christian life. So is anybody interested in learning about this attribute here this morning? All right, well, I'll keep going. So let's start with the biblical evidence for the immutability of God. That's always our foundation, isn't it? It what What does the Bible say? Not just what we come up with in our imaginations, but how has God revealed himself through his word? How does he want us to know himself? So let's see Malachi 3.6. 
it says, the Lord declares, I, the Lord, do not change. That's pretty cut and dry, isn't it? I, the Lord, do not change. Now, in the context, he's talking about his patience and mercy. But the reason behind that is because of his unchangeableness. What God is today, he has always been. What God is today, he will always be. To try to communicate this scripture compares other things to God to show that he is unchangeable. For example, unlike nature, God does not change. Psalm 106, verses 25 to 27 says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. So, God will change the universe, but God doesn't change. Nature is always changing. Hot and cold, different seasons, creatures living and dying and so forth. Even the sun changes, right? And one day the sun is going to pass away. The one thing that we kind of count on, right, that that's pretty unchangeable is the sun. But even the sun changes, and that's going to change one day. God doesn't change. God doesn't change. So unlike nature, God does not change. Unlike humanity, the pinnacle of God's creation, God does not change. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of a man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? So as that verse pinpoints, we do change. We change our minds, right? We don't keep our word. And going beyond that, we obviously know, as we said, our bodies change. If, if we live long enough, our strength and our vitality, they aren't the same as when we're younger. Our youthful appearance fades over time. Even our personalities change over time, I would say. Right? Some people might look back and say, I, you know, I'm, I'm much more outgoing than I used to be. There's a guy in our church, I won't name him, but he's a very outgoing man. But he says when he was younger... He was very shy. You'd hardly believe it now, but his personality changed, right? For some people, it might be the other way around. Or maybe over time, our character that was loving and gracious, maybe through hardships of life, we'd be get jaded and calloused. Does that ever happen? Yes, it does. But in contrast, God in His essence, He does not change. He will never become more divine or less divine. God doesn't change in these attributes that we've been covering the last couple months, right? God never becomes less powerful or more powerful. God never becomes more truthful or less truthful. He never becomes more just or omniscient or omnipresent. God never improves because he has no need to improve, right? In his book about the attributes of God, A.W. Pink writes, Quote, he cannot change for the better, for he's already perfect. And being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. Moreover, each person of the Trinity does not change. God the Father does not change. James 1.17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Listen to this, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. 
So God the Father has no shadow of change, no variation in His character and His essence. It's the same with the Son. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the same with the Holy Spirit. And yes, the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. Same God. Same God. The Word of God never changes. Psalm 118, verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Matthew 24, 35, Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Even more than the sun, even more than planets and stars and far-flung galaxies, the word of God will never fade away. Finally, the plan of God never changes. Psalm 33.11 says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Isaiah 46.9-10 says, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like Me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all My purpose. Friends, God has a plan for history and he brings it to pass just as he wants it to come to pass. And this is where you see all these attributes kind of coming together. God is omnipotent, so he has the power to do all of this, right? God is omniscient. He knows everything. And so there's nothing that catches him off guard. God is eternal. He has no beginning. So he's not trying to start and stop things. He sees it all. He can operate within time, but he's not constrained by time at all. Therefore, God accomplishes everything that he desires. Is that your view of God here this morning? This God who doesn't change in his essence, doesn't change in his character, doesn't change in his purpose and his plans, and who has given us a word that doesn't change? That's a big view of God, isn't it? And that's the kind of view of God that we need to live in our daily lives. So Scripture gives this very clear, very enthralling view of God and His immutability. But there are passages in the Bible that seem to indicate that God does change. One set of passages refers to God regretting His actions. God regretting His actions. And I want to look at some of these because I want us to understand these things so our trust and confidence in the Word of God is even stronger. But for example, prior to the flood of Noah, Genesis 6, 5 to 6 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So if God regretted his actions, it would seem to indicate that he made a mistake and he corrected it. He changed his mind. Another set of passages refers to God relenting from bringing destruction. For example, God said that he would bring destruction on the nation of Israel at various times. In some cases, he didn't bring it at all, though. In some cases, he stopped midway through. God also relented on the plan to destroy Nineveh because of the city's great wickedness. Jonah 3.10. Remember, Jonah went to Nineveh to preach to them so that they would turn from their great wickedness. Jonah 3.10 says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He said He would do to them, and He did not do it. 
So again, God seems to change his mind from his previous course of action. So how should we make sense in light of Scripture's very clear, very emphatic teaching that God does not change with these various texts? Well, I believe that Scripture does not contradict itself. Rather, it affirms that God is immutable, but it also clarifies what this actually means. And it's interesting, in the same passage in 1 Samuel chapter 15, we read that God is immutable, but in the same passage, a few verses later, we read that he regretted his actions. Let me show you. 1 Samuel 15, 11, the Lord says, I regret I have made Saul king, for he turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. So God regretted his choice of making Saul king. But then in verses 28 to 29, it says, The Lord has turned the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours, speaking of King David, who would come on the scene, who is better than you. And also the God of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So you're saying, what's going on there? We have both God's immutability and his regret in the same passage. What is Scripture trying to teach us? Do you see that? So I think to sort of unravel that, we need to have two things in our minds that will really help us. The first is this. God's nature doesn't change, but his relationship does to creation. In his essence, God does not change, but he responds to creation based on our conduct. God remains consistent with himself to bless obedience, right? And to punish rebellion and disobedience. God's disposition is the same, but how he interacts with his creatures does change based on their conduct. In both the Old and New Testament, if a sinner repents, God forgives that person because of his goodness and love. And so in this case, God changed his disposition toward King Saul, but not in who he was as God. God changes in his dealings outwardly with humanity, but his internal nature is consistent with who he is. He's not a statue. Proverbs 11.20 says, Those of crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are His delight. So this brings up the question then of whether God has feelings. And actually Christians have debated this for centuries because some might take the mentality that if God has feelings, that means that He could change and therefore He wouldn't be immutable. Right? Well, we certainly see in Scripture that God does have feelings, so is He immutable? Well, I would say that he is. Scripture speaks of his compassion, his joy, his his anger, and so forth. God is a personal being. He has emotions. Emotions are not wrong, right? He created people with emotions. He has personality, and so he responds to our actions. But this is something very important. I want you to follow this. His feelings are not identical to our feelings. Our feelings are often involuntary, aren't they? We don't usually decide to become angry or compassionate. We just are, right? You're driving down the road. Someone 
pulls right in front of you and then goes dreadfully slow. You usually don't stop and say, let me think about whether I should get angry about this. Let me get out a list. Pros and cons. The pro would be, no, you don't do that, do you? You say, man, what were you thinking doing that, right? Something just comes up out of you. Right? Our feelings are involuntary. We just have those things, right? And they can often control how we think. But God is different. He decides to feel those things. He chooses to feel these things so that he, unlike us, is not controlled by his emotions. Now, that said, I don't want to give the impression that that makes God this somehow cold and calculated being. I don't think the Bible teaches that at all. If anything, he feels these things as perfectly and passionately as anybody possibly could. Who could say that the love of God was cold and calculated? Not at all, right? But he is not controlled by those feelings. He feels emotions as deeply and perfectly as possible, but they are always under his control. So God's nature does not change, but his relationship to creation does. Second, God's eternal plan encompasses those temporal changes. In other words, God has this overarching eternal plan. And in that plan, there's steps, there's stages, there's things that are happening, but all of that is part of His greater plan. Again, nothing catches God off guard, right? Because He knows all things. He can do all things. And so even when there's things that appear to be somehow an alteration, they're not. Great examples go back to our friend King Saul. God decided not to allow him to be king any longer, right? And he regretted that he had made Saul king. Did God not foresee this coming? Of course he did. And in fact, this will bend your mind a little bit. In Genesis 49, God had already said, Judah, the tribe, the chosen king, is going to come from you. 500 years before Saul had ever appeared, it was already predicted that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. And so when Saul comes along and blows it, it wasn't like God said, okay, plan B. No, this was all part of his plan. Was there a genuine sense of regret in the way Saul acted? Absolutely, because God is a relational God. But it didn't change his essence. It didn't change his plan. Here's another one. God decided to allow the covenant with Israel to become obsolete, right? So there was no longer a need for a temple, a sacrifice, a priesthood. The new covenant brought changes, didn't it, right? We call it the new covenant for a reason. But it was always part of God's plan of redemption. Before the world was ever founded, Jesus was going to die for the sins of the world. The cross was not plan B, but it was the plan before the world ever began. J.I. Packer writes, he says, What God does in time, he planned from eternity. And of all that he planned in eternity, he carries out in time. A little bit later, he says, 
speaking of these texts that speak of God changing his mind, the references in each case is to a reversal of God's previous treatment of particular people, consequent upon their reaction to that treatment. But there's no suggestion that his reaction was not foreseen or that it took God by surprise and was not provided for in his eternal plan. No change in his internal purpose is implied when he begins to deal with the person in a new way. He nailed it right there. And so on a personal level, God deals with you the same way. So say, for example, with prayer. You might be sitting there thinking, well, man, if God is in control of everything and he's immutable, why do we even pray, right? God's already decided what's going to happen, so why pray? But friends, Scripture doesn't teach fatalism. God is immutable and he answers prayer. He makes changes in our lives and in our circumstances based on our prayer. There's no change in prayer, excuse me, there's change in God because his response is built into the response of the person. Does that make sense? His response is built into the response of our person, of who we are. For example, Isaiah 38, God told King Hezekiah, you're going to die. He pleads fervently that God would allow him to live. God decided to allow him to live another 15 years. So here's how I would, I would understand what just, ta- just happened there. It was God's plan all along to add 15 years to King Hezekiah's life. So was God being disingenuous? No, I think his prayer was part of the plan that stirred God to allow him to live another 15 years. It was always part of his plan to allow him to do so. But it was also part of his plan that he would pray and that God would answer his prayer in return. You say, well, why does God do all that? You got me. I don't know. God's omniscient. He's good. He could have a million reasons why he wanted Hezekiah to really wrestle with God in prayer about his life and for God to heal him. Maybe uh, Hezekiah needed to be humbled. This man saw God work in amazing ways in his life, saw God's hand move powerfully, and maybe he needed humility. Does that sound familiar to the Apostle Paul? God used greatly, but yet had a thorn in the flesh that he would not take out. He needed to be humbled. And then the very next chapter in Isaiah 39 He seems to boast about his greatness to the Babylonian envoys, the same Babylonians who are going to destroy his kingdom in the coming days. Maybe this was a warning sign to turn and trust me, not in your greatness, Hezekiah. Who knows what he had in mind? But the point is, is that God's eternal plan does not ultimately change. And his eternal plan encompasses changes which in our mind seem like they're, they're things that are alterations to the plan. They're never alterations to the plan of God. These things will unfold and will come to pass. So whether it's our sin, whether it's our obedience, whether it's our prayers, God's plan reigns supreme because He is unchanging. Now sometimes people will bring up Jesus becoming a man. 
right? How can that be? Scripture teaches that Jesus is fully God. He possesses all of the attributes of God, right? Yet he became a man. The word became flesh, as John 1.14 says. How can we say that God is immutable when Jesus became a man? Well, friends, the deity of Jesus did not change during his incarnation. Jesus' deed is exactly as it was before the incarnation and is exactly as it is now, right? Now that he's returned to heaven. What Jesus did, though, was that he veiled the usage and the display of his majesty while he was on earth. Because in order to be fully man, he could not walk around and live and minister in that capacity. Remember when he showed his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration to three disciples and they were overwhelmed, they couldn't even speak? It would be kind of hard for Jesus to be fully man if he walked around that way. So he veiled the display and the usage of his attributes, but he didn't stop being God, did he? Rather, Jesus took on, he added humanity to his full deity. Friends, this is what is so amazing about what we're about to celebrate in a month or so with Christmas. That fully God, Jesus, took on humanity. That's why we celebrate with a whole new set of eyes. This is what Christmas is about. This is why we have a sense of gratitude. And the book of Hebrews really drives this home in a really memorable way. In chapter 1, it quotes Psalm 102 that talked about the heavens being wrapped up like a scroll and disappearing one day. And it takes that passage and it says, that's Jesus And then it comes along in chapter 2 and talks about how we needed a high priest, a great high priest who would become fully man. And it says of Jesus' full humanity in chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered and when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So the unchangeable God took on humanity. And the book of Hebrews spends a lot of time discussing Jesus as our great high priest. He knows our trials. He knows what we went through and his humanity. And then it closes out in Hebrews 13, 8, as I said earlier, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So God does not change. But I think if we would just stop with a sense of just reverence in our hearts and think about what Jesus went to went through, there is a sense in which Jesus in his humanity experienced things that must have stunned and horrified him. He experienced death. He experienced judgment on the cross. He experienced alienation from the Father because He took our place as our sin substitute. Jesus did this so that we can change. You see, friends, apart from God's grace, We cannot change. Are you listening? The Bible says that we are blinded and bound by our sinful nature. And we're further shackled by demonic opposition that seeks to distract us and 
lead us astray. Worldly systems that oppose God. We need to change. We live in a world of change, as we said at the beginning, but we also need to change. But the thing is, is that we can't change on our own. Do you see that? But we must change. The Bible says that this is what is called repentance. It literally means to change your mind. Not a change of mind, you know, do I want a Dr. Pepper or do I want a Mountain Dew? Talking about a whole fundamental change of your mindset, how you live your life. We need change because we need to see God as he truly is, that he is Lord of our lives. We are not Lord. That means what he says goes in all cases. We must change our mind towards sin. That we stop dismissing it or blowing it off or just saying that's the way I am. Or we blame others for how we act. We need to see it as the Bible describes it, as that it is a violation of God's law. That it grieves God, that it dishonors God, that will merit judgment one day because of our sin and what we have spoken of earlier, that he is a just God. You see, repentance is seeing things differently. When someone becomes a Christian, they see sin differently, don't they? In fact, that's a telltale sign that someone has genuinely changed is because they don't start, they don't continue to pass the buck, they don't start, continue to blame others. They acknowledge, they confess, I am a sinner. It's not just my parents' fault, it's not the circumstances surrounding my life. I have sinned and I need to own what I have done. That is repentance. We need to change our mind about our pride. Oh, we like to rely on our good works, don't we? Why should you go to heaven? Well, I'm a good person, right? The good little bit weighs out the bad. 51% is all I'm gunning for, right? If I get that, I'm okay. (laughs) We need to have repentance, a change of our thinking. That we don't rely on our good works for salvation, but instead trust what Jesus, the God-man, accomplished on the cross. And all that we are called to do is to simply believe who He is and what He accomplished on the cross and to follow Him. To follow Him. The unchangeable God has made it possible for you to change. I hope you're not sitting in here this morning thinking, I can't change. I've been doing this sin for years. There's no way I'll change. Or I'm so mad at God, this, that, and the other. I'll never change. Maybe you have hurt. Maybe you have pain. Whatever it might be, God can change you. God can change you. The hardest thing in the entire universe is not some mineral. It is the human heart. But God can change the human heart. As we see his love, that he would be willing, as the unchangeable God, to become a man, to die on the cross, 
so that we can change and have a new heart and love God and love people in a way that would never have happened apart from His grace. God is good. 2 Corinthians 5.17 declares, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the, excuse me, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Has it ever happened in your life that the new has happened? If it, if it never has, the Bible says that today can be the day of salvation. If you will change your mind toward God, see Him for who He is, and humble yourself and place your faith in Christ, you, my friend, will know Christ. You will know the forgiveness of sin, and you will go to heaven when you die. God is good. Amen? The immutability of God. What an attribute. Now, as Christians, how should the immutability of God change us? Well, there's a lot to say on that one, but I'm not going to tell you. You need to come back next week because we're going to shift our focus a little bit to a very closely related attribute, the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. You will love hearing about the faithfulness of God. If you do not love hearing about the faithfulness of God, I really encourage you to head to the emergency room immediately after church service. Check your pulse, okay? Because there's something wrong going on there. You will love hearing about the faithfulness of God. How God does what He says And he keeps his promises. But going back to the fact that he's an unchanging God. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Lord Charles Wesley wrote, And all things as they change proclaim, the Lord eternally the same. We thank you that you do not change. That you are who you are. I am who I am. That in your essence, you are the same. In your attributes, you are the same. In your plan, you are the same. Lord, your word is the same. We thank you that you are indeed, as we sang earlier, a rock. And Lord, we also thank you that you deal and interact with a created world that is in constant change. And that you love us so much that you do engage with us. You do interact with us. Not in a way that we overwhelm your emotions so that you have to do something. We know that you are fully in control and sovereign of all things. And we praise you for that. You wouldn't be much of a God if we could twist your arm. But yet at the same time, we also trust that you genuinely have these emotions. You genuinely rejoice and grieve and are angry and so forth, Lord. You are not a statue, but you're the source of all feelings and emotions. And Lord, we pause and just praise you for the fact that you have this plan 
that the universe is not just drifting aimlessly, but is proceeding along according to the purpose and the plan of God. And we're so thankful that we are a part of that. Thankful that you've opened our eyes to see that. And Lord, my prayer is for someone here today whose life maybe is in a constant state of flux and change and turmoil, and they're looking for some kind of rock to build their lives, I pray that they would see that the unchangeable God went to a cross so that they could change themselves. That there is hope because of what Christ has done. That they don't have to live their lives in shackles of despair and of hopelessly trying to do more good than bad, bound up in religion, when what they need is a Savior. Pray that you would open eyes and hearts this morning, as only you can do. We love you and we praise you, God. We thank you for all your tender mercies toward us. And Lord, we thank you that you are a faithful God, And Lord, we look forward to hearing about that next Sunday. The wonderful, faithful promises of God that we base our lives upon. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. All God's people said, Amen.